You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So, hey, did you guys hear about the leader of the ex-gay conversion therapy movement who came out as gay last week and apologized to other gay people for the lies and the harm he done? What's that? Oh, no, no, no. Not not Michael Boosie and Gary Cooper. Those homos co-founded Exodus International in 1976. For decades, Exodus was the world's largest ex-gay ministry. But just three years after co-founding it, Boosie and Cooper came out as gay and got married. Well, they got commitment ceremonied, which was the best they could do at the time, and apologized to other gay people for the harm they'd done and the lies that they'd told. Was that? No, no, I'm not talking about Alan Chambers either. He was the last guy to head up Exodus International, became the president of the organization in 2001, and then shut the thing down in 2013, at which point he apologized to the gay people who'd been harmed by Exodus and admitted that conversion therapy doesn't work. Chambers himself didn't come out as gay, but he did describe himself at the time as not straight. But I wasn't talking about him. And I wasn't talking about John Smid either, who was the former director of Love in Action, another ministry that tried to convert gay people into straight people. Smid came out in 2011, married a dude, moved to Texas. And I'm not talking about John Polk, the founder of Love One Out, a gay conversion therapy program run by the anti-gay hate group Focus on the Family. He came out as gay or came out as gay again in 2013. And I'm not talking about Ben Grisham or Jeremy Marks or Tim Rimmel or Anthony Van Brown or Gunter Baum, all leaders of conversion therapy programs who've come out, admitted their programs were ineffective and harmful and apologized to the gay community. No, the former ex-gay leader we are talking about this week, the most recent high-profile inductee into the ranks of the XX gays, also known as the gays, is McCray Game, the man who founded Hope for Wholeness. Back in 1999, conversion therapy is not just a lie, but it's very harmful, Game told the Post and Courier. Maybe Game should have Googled Alan Chambers or Polk or any of the others who came out before him. And Game went on to say, harmful because it is false advertising. False advertising. Not only doesn't conversion therapy work, as the leaders of this crackpot movement are reminded every single time they rub one out, but it does real harm. Vulnerable people, the kind of people these groups prey on, have been driven to suicide. Game, Polk, Smith, Marks, Chambers, Boosie, Cooper, ex-gay leaders coming out as gay should really be a dog bites man story at this point. And yet somehow it isn't. People are still shocked, shocked to learn that a man who dedicated his life to talking other people out of being gay was really secretly trying to talk himself out of it the whole time. Pro tip, anyone who tries to talk you out of being gay is actually trying to talk himself out of being gay and not having any more success with himself than he's having with you. But, but, this just in, the Washington Post reports that the ex-gay Christianity movement is making a comeback. Some prominent Christians are quietly trying to resurrect ex-gay Christianity, and the new incarnation is hipper and perhaps more evolved. Yet beneath the cosmetic tweaks sits the same message that has damaged many lives over many decades. You see, the new ex-gay movement isn't about being ex-gay. It's not about converting anyone from homosexuality to heterosexuality. They've tried that and failed again and again, and no one is buying that anymore. 
So they're evolving away from that. The old X gay movement put up billboards that said, change is possible. The new X gay movement, according to the Washington Post, has a new message. Change is possible and necessary. But they're not going to try to make you straight. The new X gay movement isn't going to make you miserable by forcing you to pretend you're straight and happy about it. No, the new X gay movement is going to make you miserable by making you celibate which they call leaving the lifestyle. The message now is you will never escape your thirst for cock or your hunger for pussy, depending on what kind of gay you are. But with the help of Jesus Christ, you can escape from love, affection, intimacy, and sex. But if you really want to be ex-gay and right with God, it's not enough to not be sucking cock. Anyone cannot be sucking cock. I am not sucking cock right now. But what matters is why you're not sucking cock. Right now, I'm not sucking cock because it's rude to talk with your mouth full. And Nancy is sitting right here. No, no, no. The new and improved ex-gay movement wants you, requires you. They want me not to suck cock for the right reason. And that right reason, that new and improved reason is Jesus. Same as the old reason. While the Washington Post is worried about this new phase of the ex-gay movement, which really isn't that new. Gay and Christian and celibate, the changing face of the homosexuality debate, Religion News 2013. Is celibacy the new ex-gay ministry, HuffPo 2014. Gay celibacy is the new ex-gay therapy, The Daily Beast 2015. This is not new. But while the Washington Post is worried about this not-so-new phase of the ex-gay movement, I'm really not. I'm annoyed by it. I think it's idiotic. I think it's harmful. But Christians have been pushing this celibacy shit on the gays and on the straights right at the start of Christianity for thousands of years to little or no success. I would like to introduce into evidence the Catholic Church. So I'm not really worried because sex wins. Sex always wins. Sex is more powerful than we are, and it's certainly more powerful than our imaginary friends. With sex, you can't pretend that what is isn't and what isn't is. Alan Chambers, John Polk, McCray Game, they all tried to pretend. They fooled their followers, and they harmed their followers, but in the end, they couldn't fool their own dicks. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and a long conversation with a male unicorn. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, Orna Goralnik joins us, the therapist on Showtime's new Couples Therapy. Check out the rave review in the New York Times. And Anna Waters from The Atlantic joins us to talk all things dental dams. That is on the Magnum that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. But there is plenty on the micro this week, too. All of it is coming at you on today's show in just a minute. Hi, Dan. I'm a cisgendered 27-year-old woman from Australia. I'm in a very happy relationship with my boyfriend. But in the first six months or so, we had very, very regular sex. In you know, We live apart, but four, five, six times a week. Ever since it's gotten a little bit more serious, uh, we're reaching up that year point, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for a 27 and a 30-year-old, it seems pretty serious. We spend a lot of time together. We go to weddings, etc. We cannot have physical sex to completion, and that hasn't happened for about three months. I can go down on him till he finishes. I can touch his you know, and uh, give him a hand job and it will work, but it just is not happening. And he says it's a mental block that he can't, I guess, uh, you know, 
complete while we have intercourse. I wonder if it, the actual reason is his, you know, um, trepidation and uh, feeling like he's pretty well trusted me, or if there really can be like an emotional hold back of is this him holding back in our relationship when it was more casual and early could he have sex with me and come or is it going on to a point where he considers me a serious partner with my vision as parents etc and he feels like he can't come in me I guess or can't um, have sex to completion for some reason if I become the Madonna when I used to be the whore you do have physical sex to completion. He is able to ejaculate from oral sex and hand jobs. PIV is obviously important to you and you attached a lot of meaning to penetrative vaginal intercourse. And maybe penetrative vaginal intercourse has a lot of meaning for him. And as the stakes rose in your relationship, as it became more intimate, more long term, as he began imagining a future with you, suddenly he can't come during PIV and he needs other forms of stimulation. Could be that, but you haven't been with this guy for a year yet. And somewhere around the six month mark, this problem began. His difficulty with ejaculating during PIV began. And I sit here asking myself, what's the likelier explanation? He was able to come inside you during PIV without a problem for six months. And then when he caught feelings for you, he suddenly couldn't come inside you anymore during PIV, but he could still come from hand jobs and blowjobs. Or did he start taking medication? Is he taking an antidepressant? Did he start taking an antidepressant and not tell you about it? Did he start taking erectile dysfunction medications without telling you about it? Six months in, he may not feel comfortable enough with you emotionally to share all of his medical info with you. He may be embarrassed if he felt he had to go on antidepressants or go back on antidepressants, didn't share that with you right away. Or if he began to have erection problems, he went on ED meds and didn't tell you about it because he was embarrassed. And ED meds and antidepressants can interfere with the guy's ability to come. But all we can do is sort of kick theories around. The only person who knows the answer to this question is him. And if it's a psychological thing, he may not be able to articulate the reasons why he's suddenly having this issue. So I would encourage you to communicate with your partner, to ask him what might be going on here, to emphasize to him the importance to you of him ejaculating during PIV intercourse and the intimacy of that and the closeness of that, and you miss it, while also at the same time, it's possible to do this at the same time, emphasizing that you're happy to blow him, happy to give him hand jobs, happy to get fucked without him coming and then pivot to hand jobs or blow jobs when he wants to get off, that you can roll with this for now. But you'd like to figure this out and get back to where you were at the start of the relationship, where he could come inside you during PIV and also come in your mouth during oral, come in your hand if you're giving him a hand job. And you don't mind oral and hand jobs in the mix, but you don't want PIV to climax to drop out of the mix forever. Madonna whore complexes are real things for straight guys. And some straight guys find it easier to respond sexually with someone that they aren't emotionally invested in, someone they haven't put up on a pedestal, someone that they can feel down and dirty about without feeling conflicted about feeling down and dirty about that person. And it takes a certain degree of emotional security, 
and dexterity to honor and love someone and get down and dirty with that person, to see them as both at once, Madonna and whore, not one or the other. And if that is indeed his problem, that's something that you two can discuss, but it's also something he may need to unpack with a shrink. Hi, Dan. I am a woman living in the Midwest in my mid-30s, happily married. Um, we have an amazing sex life, no issues there. Um, recently, there was one thing I kept from him, um, which is a little kink of mine, which I'm a plus-size woman. He loves my body, never had any issues with that, or and I feel great about my body, but... Um, I think I have is the feederism, which is, you know, being fed. I've watched a lot of porn about it and belly play, things like that. Um, it was something, you know, we're very open, but that was something I always kept to myself. Uh, not too long ago, he found some porn I was watching on my phone. Wasn't really hidden. Um, he brought it up to me, no shaming, um, and kind of just asked if we, you know, did I want to try it? And first I was embarrassed because it was something I kept to myself. And I said, yeah, I want to try it. Something I've been into for years and never actually tried. Um, so we did it the first time and it felt kind of awkward Didn't really get into it. And we've tried it a few times since and I'm still just not getting the full pleasure from it. And I don't know if it's because I know it's not particularly his kink, even though he's willing to do it, or I'm still feeling some shame for some reason. But by myself and looking at porn, everything else, I get into it. I fantasize about it. What do I do with that? How can I, you know, bring this kink to life and do it with someone who is willing to do it with me and open and have fun with it? Or, you know, should I just say this is something that I do mind myself and not something we bring into the bedroom. You've never done this with anyone before, which means all of your past experiences with your feeder kink have been fantasy. You've watched pornography, which is edited, idealized, or you've leaned back in your chair and maybe read stories and masturbated and everything in a fantasy Everything in a literatica story, everything on porn is kind of perfect and it kind of hits all those marks without any awkwardness. In real life, realizing your kinks with another human being, living out your fantasies, pulling them together, putting it together, there are going to be moments of awkwardness and you need to power through those. You need to not be derailed by those moments of awkwardness. And that can take some getting used to, especially if you fantasized about something forever, masturbated about something forever, and then you're doing that thing with a human being. And there isn't a, an editor there clipping out the awkward parts. And the two of you kind of have to laugh and get past the awkward parts and then dive back into the fantasy. And that is an act of will, requires some suspension of disbelief to get there, but it's worth it to get there. All that said, some people have fantasies that when they live them out or attempt to live them out, they find that this thing, whatever it is, and for whatever reason, they enjoy it more as a fantasy and they may want to reserve it for fantasy play, for private time, masturbation time, watching porn time. And that is legitimate. And it takes some exploration often for people to come to that determination. 
Another thing that is true for many kinksters is that their desire is reactive, as they say, that your enjoyment of your kink, whatever it is, requires the yin-yang of someone else's enjoyment of the flip side of enacting that fantasy scenario. Knowing you're with someone who is maybe going through the motions for you to please you drains the experience of the erotic tension that turns you on. Now, you can make that work. That's a, a bit of awkwardness. That's something you can get past. It requires a little bit of the suspension of disbelief. And you have to allow for the potential of your partner, if you continue to explore this thing, to really catch a groove, to find something in your kink that speaks to them. And in a sense, it becomes their kink too. But that takes time. You say you've only done this a handful of times, a few times. Awkward the first time, not great the second or third time. Who couldn't say that about vanilla sex? Who couldn't say that just about plain old regular intercourse? Awkward the first time, awkward another time after that, the time after that, the first few times, kind of awkward because you hadn't caught a groove yet with the partner that you were with, if it was the same person each time, because you hadn't figured out how to be in the moment, you hadn't figured out how to communicate what your desires were and how to bring your partner into that world. I think when it comes to something as complicated as a kink, as complicated as a kink like feeder, gainer, that it may take a little more time for you to catch that groove, for you to communicate with your partner in an effective way, for you to get past the awkwardness that's sort of built into all new experiences, particularly new sexual experiences, and arrive at that place where you can relax into your fantasy in the same way that you've been able to relax into that fantasy watching porn or reading about feeder gainer scenes. So I wouldn't give up on partnered feeder gainer play just yet if it turns you on and your partner is willing to go there. And don't let kink shame overwhelm you in the moment where you feel like this person who's indulging me, this person who's doing this for me is only pretending that they're secretly silently judging me what you have to do instead is tap into their pleasure in giving you pleasure even if whatever it is that you're doing isn't their thing and it's not something they would want to do with somebody else it's legitimate that they want to do this with you and they're turned on not necessarily by it but by the bank shot they're turned on by how much it whatever it is turns you on and that is a perfectly valid form of arousal. And if you just buy into that and believe it, you can go there with the vanilla partner who's indulging you. Hey, Dan, I'm a 20-something-year-old five male living in a large metropolitan area in the Midwest. And the other night, I was out at a bar uh, hanging out with a bunch of friends from back in the day, and when it got towards the end of the night, I was talking with a high school friend's uh, wife, and she invited me back to spend the night with them, too, and uh, we went over, because I wanted to talk to, like, the high school friend, and with her, and so he was down, and he wanted to come over, so we left the bar soon after that, and while we were on the way, and even at the bar, we didn't really talk about like what was actually going to happen or what they wanted to do. So then when we got there, um, she went into her bedroom and was saying, like, I'm going to get ready. And then him and I just had a drink and kind of talked about like what 
he was into, and we made out a little bit, and he then went in to check in on her and came out and said, like, oh, yeah, she just needs a little bit more time, made out some more, and then that kind of just happened over and over again. He kind of, like, groped me a bit, but it was getting really late, so I said, like, yeah, I just, like, kind of need to go to bed, and nothing really more than that happened. So the next day, he texted me later in the night, uh, or later in the day, I should say, and was like, hey, you know, sorry, she's really tired and felt like a little too drunk. Um, we'd really love to have you over again. And I said, like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Like, let's find a time. And I, uh, my question and, like, the advice I'm seeking is what type of communication should I have with them before we, like, kind of, like, go into their house again or go to the bedroom together? You know, should we, like, meet up? at a bar beforehand and kind of talk things through. I just feel like, you know, I want to be respectful of their couple's relationship. And I think this is like one of their first times doing it. I'm not weirded out by what happened, like, you know, getting too drunk, having the best of us. But yeah, this is also my first time kind of like hooking up with a couple. I'm just looking for some advice on like uh, what should be like the sequence of events. So how well do you know this friend from high school? These people aren't unknown to you, right? They're familiar to you. Yeah, they're familiar to me. I was playing on a pool league with uh, a guy for a while, um, and I met the wife through, through him. Usually the advice about meeting up in advance is when people are strangers. You know, you want to meet in a public place, you want to get a sense of them as people, you want to make sure you have their real information. If your gut tells you that they're dangerous or they just feel off, then you don't go somewhere private with them. And you meet at a time when you can't go away. You know, you meet at four o'clock on a day when you have, you know, five o'clock right after work when you have dinner plans with somebody else. But since these are old friends and you know them socially and you already have an established rapport and you know they're not serial killers, I think you're fine for your next date just to be heading over to their place. Gotcha. Thanks for the advice. Yeah, that makes (laughs) that makes sense. And that, that seems reasonable. And obviously you don't want to go out for drinks again because it sounds like alcohol is what derailed that that, that first opportunity. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Or maybe just a drink to, to uh, something. But yeah, definitely not staying out all night yeah, again. Maybe a drink, but sometimes when people are nervous, particularly if they're doing something sexually they haven't done before, a drink doesn't stay a drink. It becomes drinks. Yeah, um, you're right. And so just to to be in a place where there are no drinks or there's just a six pack of beer. So there's no more than two drinks a piece possible, I I think is a good idea. You know, some people will listen to, you know, your depiction of the events of that evening and wonder if it wasn't a bait and switch, if it wasn't about getting you there for him. And and I don't think that's the case, because if it was a bait and switch, he would have pressed you to, to do more than just make out and grope a little bit while you waited for her. I think the fact that he mm-hmm. left the room, found out that she was indisposed, which happens when people drink and stay out late and go home. They think they're, they've got the energy, they can do it, and then they realize they can't. It, it seems legit. You know, he didn't press you to keep going without her. He said, you know what? Tonight's off. Thank you for coming over. Let's try to, to reschedule. Yeah. And yeah, that makes, yeah. So maybe like at dinner or something like that. Yeah, and that makes me feel like there was no um, – you know, shady intentions here and they weren't being manipulative. All that said, 
you do need some clarity before you have a three-way about, you know, especially when you're the very special guest star and uh, about what's expected of you. And you can be clear about what you'd like to experience too. But, you, you know, I hate to make these things hierarchical, but the couple is kind of the priority. Like the, the, the very special guest star has mm-hmm. to be comfortable. The very special guest star can, you know, want to have vaginal intercourse with some of their guy's girlfriend. But if that's something they want to reserve just for them, then that might be off the menu. And if that's not okay with you, then you're not the right very special guest star for them. But if it is okay with you, then it can be. And you need to have that conversation in advance. So everyone's on the same page about expectations. And then stick to what's mm-hmm. on the list. Don't start to improvise, especially as the very special guest star. Don't try to go for something that you know that they ruled out or reopen negotiations about it. Absolutely don't try to like make a move when you know that that move isn't welcome and it's already been ruled out because that's a violation of consent. But even to say, you know, now that we're hot and heavy and rolling around, can we revisit this me fucking your girlfriend issue? Like that's not okay. You have to stick to the script and so did they. But you can't Absolutely. stick to a you can't stick to a script that you guys haven't written and agreed to, and so you need to agree to right. at least the bare outlines. You know, you don't want to script every beat, every moment, every touch, you know, every tongue, <laughs> because you know you want some room for play and rolling around. But the broad outlines: yeah. who's going to do what to who, what they're up for, what they want to experience, what you want to experience, all of that should be articulated in advance. And that doesn't have to be a clinical legal discussion. That can be a, a sexy kind of dirty talk convo. And if it's easier to do via text, start a group text and do it via text. Some people find that draws them out in a way where a face-to-face conversation, at least initially, is harder for them, that they can state their needs clearly on text, and then it makes it easier for them to state their needs clearly face-to-face after they've already put it out there via text. So that's also an option. Yeah, that feels like a, a good first step to at least re-get the conversation going, like sending a text that says, hey, it was really fun last time. I want to do you know, a meet-up again, or maybe we should get some boundaries in place before yeah, let, we Let's before hang we out, and not in a bar, and not too late at night. And yeah. The the pro right. tip I give all the time when it comes to three ways and just something that I would throw out to this couple uh if I were in your shoes and I was more experienced with three ways is all three ways become two ways once in a while. There's always like a pivot where suddenly it's two people who are, you know, on each other or focused on each other for a second. Is that okay? If it's not okay, how do we control for that when it happens? so that everyone is empowered if they're uncomfortable in the moment to speak up. Usually more of a problem for the couple. You know, if you're suddenly, you know, mm-hmm. connecting with his girlfriend in a way where he feels outside of it, you don't want him to begin to stew or get angry or weird. You want him to to say, "Hey yeah. you guys, pull me back into this so I don't begin to stew or feel awkward or weird." And then pull him back in. Same with you, same with her. Although it's usually not the third who gets to say, hey, you guys are leaving me out for a little bit. The third usually is expected to be and often is without any thought gracious about that because the emotional stakes are much higher for the couple who's inviting a third in when one half of the couple splits off for a second or three minutes and it becomes a two-way with the guest. That's more emotionally tricky for the couple than it is for the the third to, to suddenly be on the out. Yeah. Yeah, thanks but for that. You're you're welcome. But I I don't think that this is a problem. I think this is potentially really hot and sexy and awesome and Yahtzee for you. Congrats. Yeah. Go for it. Thanks. 
Go for it cool. earlier in the evening and with less alcohol. Yeah, sounds like a plan, Dan. Thanks for the advice. You're welcome. And the call. You're welcome. Have fun. Hi, Dan. A 30-year-old bisexual female calling from Europe. I've got a kind of a twofold question for you. I've been dating my boyfriend for four years. We're happy, but the sex has slowed a lot. It used to be the best sex of my life. And we've tried to spice it up, but it hasn't really been working out that well for us. So I have a friend who I knew from a, a job. I used to work. We used to work together. And we meet up every few months and we go for a drink. We have a laugh. And I'm not that attracted to her. But the last time we went for a drink, she told me that she is attracted to me and that she'd like to have a threesome with me and my boyfriend. So as I said, I'm not that attracted to her. I ran it by my boyfriend and he seems to be up for it. So considering that we have been having trouble kind of spicing up our sex life, is it something do you think we should go for? And if not, do you have any advice on how to revive a sex life that was incredible, the best and has just become too familiar. My first impulse is to tell you not to have this three-way. You're not attracted to this woman. You're not attracted to this friend who proposed having a three-way with you and your boyfriend. And isn't that a recipe for disaster? Well, potentially. Potentially, that is indeed a recipe for disaster. However, most people who, most couples who have three-ways who are straight they're having that three-way with a person that half the couple isn't necessarily attracted to. They're attracted to the circumstance, the situation, the three-way is hot. But if it's a female, female, male three-way and the female in the couple is straight, she's not going to be attracted to the other woman. And yet lots of people have made that scenario work on the flip side too, where there's a straight guy in the couple and they have another straight guy or bi guy round and he's not into the guy, but he's into the three-way and he's into how this guy is into his girlfriend or his girlfriend is so into it. He's willing to go there for her. So yeah, this can work. But I think in this instance where the person that you're thinking about as your potential third has expressed not just an interest in having a three-way or you just weren't thinking about having a three-way with her and your boyfriend is attracted to her and she's attracted to your boyfriend. She's attracted to you. She put that out there. She led with that. So the odds that if you went to bed with her, it would become clear to her during the interaction that you weren't into her in the same way that she was into you or as receptive of her attention as she hoped you might be are really high and she could wind up with hurt feelings and those hurt feelings could derail that three-way that you were hoping would revive your sexual connection with your boyfriend. So yeah, to a three-way, but maybe a three-way with someone else. Or maybe a two-way with your boyfriend. She hit on you first. You could say to her, I'm not really interested in you in that same way. But you know what? If you're into my boyfriend and you've already established that your boyfriend's into her, my boyfriend's into you and it would be hot for me to know you guys were fucking or to think about it or to hear about it before or after. So you could offer your boyfriend up on a platter if that turns you on. A lot of people find when they open their relationship that they're not just excited about the sex that they're suddenly able to have with other people, but they often become excited again about the sex that they can have with their partners. That is so often true. It's practically a cliche that a couple's sex life was dead. They opened it to outside sexual partners because both of them had to get it somewhere. And suddenly, into the surprise of the couple, they were fucking each other again. They were excited about each other again. 
I think because they look at each other now through fresh eyes and see what makes them attractive to others and that revives their attraction to their partner. Now, leaving this woman and this particular threesome aside, and she's not the only woman in the world that you could have a threesome with or the only person in the world you could have a threesome with, reviving your sex life with your partner. It was the best. Now it's, you said it, too familiar. You guys are always going to be this familiar to each other. Indeed, you guys are going to become more and more familiar to each other over time. So you have to mix it up. You have to fight boredom. You have to make unfamiliar what it is in your power to make unfamiliar. And that can be the stuff that you guys are doing with each other. You can try new things. You can try new sex toys. That can be the places where you guys are doing each other. Get out of your apartment. Get out of his apartment. Get out of the same old bed. Don't have it at the same time, time of day. Just make a conscious effort to blow it all up. To put limits, to say, you know what? No more sex in my apartment, no more sex in your apartment, no more sex in our beds. This position that has been our default for so long, it is off the menu. We're not going to do that. Or maybe, and this is advice I've given a lot of opposite sex couples, and I've heard positive things back from those opposite sex couples take PIV off the menu. PIV is often a default for heterosexual couples in a way that PIA is not necessarily a default for gay couples. Mix it up. Get creative. But to get creative when you're in a deep groove as a couple requires intent and it requires effort and buy-in. And that buy-in and that effort can be from a place of not despair, but a place of excitement about the adventure that you two are going to link arms and go on together now. You were his adventure when you first got together. He was your adventure when you first got together. You want it to be exciting again? You two together have to go on new adventures. This woman who hit on you, that could be an adventure. Maybe an adventure that you want your boyfriend to have with her without you there. Or maybe it can be one of those three ways where you're not necessarily into the other person. That can work. Worry about her getting her feelings hurt. Or if just three ways are what she put into your head, oh my God, get out there. Find someone else that you could potentially have a three-way with. Three ways aren't the only way to mix it up. It's not the only adventure that you guys could go on together, but it's a good place to start. Um, hi, Dan. I have a question about the Clona Willy family of products, uh, specifically the etiquette involved in soliciting a Willy clone. For context, I am a gay trans man. I've been dating a cis tan guy for about four, uh, four and a half months, and he's really great, and I have a lot of fun with him, and he has the most majestic cock that I've ever laid my mouth on. So I am thinking about asking to use the Clona Willy kit to make a dildo version. I think it'd be fun. Um, there's a lot of really cool things I can think of to do with it, but I'm wondering whether four months is too early to start talking about cloning people's genitals. And then to complicate things, uh, we're both non-monogamous. I've talked to my primary partner about the idea, and they decided that, like, if I do get a clone of this guy's cock, they'd rather not see it at all. My two partners are friends, and it feels to my primary like a breach of boundaries to know what my secondary's cock looks like without him being, you know, active in that decision. Uh, meanwhile, the guy that I'm dating has a wife and a girlfriend, and if I end up with a clone, do they have the right to know? Do they have the right to not know? I don't know whether this is a boundary that could need discussion for those relationships or something that maybe falls under reasonable expectations of privacy. Uh, there's no protocol here, so I just kind of wanted to hear what your instincts are. 
Yeah, the pages in Emily Post that cover the etiquette of cloning someone's cock, of making a dildo of someone's cock, they're blank. There's no guidance. Your primary partner is uncomfortable with seeing this dildo, not uncomfortable with the existence of this dildo, because they're friends with the person that you're dating, this lovely, hung, cis, pan guy. Perfectly understandable. The only other person whose opinion should concern you is the guy that you're dating. And if you're having a fun, sexually adventurous relationship with this guy and you'd like to make a dildo of his dick, that's just something you can toss out there. And if 4.5 months is too soon for him to contemplate dick cloning, then he'll tell you that. As for his wife, his girlfriend, those are his relationships to manage. I can't imagine, however, that someone who is pan and poly, who has a wife and a girlfriend and is dating a guy, that they're so possessive of his magnificent cock that they would take issue with him making a dildo and gifting the guy he's seeing right now with that dildo. But if they do have an issue with it, Those are his relationships to worry about, his relationships to manage. The relationship you need to worry about primarily is your relationship with your primary partner, and you've managed that. Now you can just toss it out there to this guy, see how he feels about it. And if he wants to raise the subject at home during a meeting of the entire extended polycule pan family, that's on him. Hey, Dan. Gay guy in New York City here. I recently just saw a new therapist. And I went to my first meeting with him, and he is so hot. He's an openly gay man, LGBTQ-affirming therapist, and he's literally the most beautiful man I've ever seen. I took it as an exercise of talking to hot people that intimidate me. Um, But at the same time, he's so hot. Is this a conflict of interest? Is this anything I will ever have to tell him? Should I just treat this as a little gift? I'm not sure what to do. But he's, Dan, he's so hot that I don't think I can tell him that because he's my therapist. He's not your therapist yet. You had one appointment with him. That's kind of like a first date. You don't have to commit on the first date. If he's so hot that you can't open up to him that you can't talk about whatever it is you wanted to see a therapist to talk about because you're too busy flirting with him or Potemkin villaging yourself, trying to present the best possible version of yourself to make yourself more attractive to him because in the reptile part of your brain or even in the non-reptile part of your brain, you're fantasizing about having a sexual relationship or a relationship relationship with this guy might not be the best therapist for you then. That could really complicate the therapeutic relationship. If you're interested in seeing him, if he's your only option or he's the best option and besides the hotness, you're really connected, you're going to have to be honest with him. You're going to have to tell him that this is part of what you're going through, (laughs) that these thoughts are weighing on you and you need to figure out how to set them aside so that you can have a patient therapist relationship with him or perhaps if there's no way to set that aside, if it's going to complicate this relationship, then you may have to ultimately go with a different therapist. And then if he can't be your therapist, if you can't have that kind of relationship with him, who knows, maybe you'll run into him out in a bar in a few years' time and be in a better place and it wouldn't be 
quite as enormous an ethical violation if he wanted to see you and did. You could live in hope. Hi, Dan. I am a woman in my late 30s, and I just recently accepted my bisexuality, and I'm trying to figure out, um, I guess, the ways to express that. I am married to a man that I've been with for over 20 years, and we're starting to have discussions about me physically expressing that. And I am worried about STIs and possibly getting one. And I've been looking up things and see that there's dental dams. I wonder if this is something that women are actually using or if this is just something that's out there and never gets used or not. If you could let me know, that'd be great. I don't um, I don't even know where to begin with this, but I wouldn't want to show up with one of these and there'll be like, I <laughs> just laugh at me. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Anna Waters, assistant producer at Atlantic Live and the author of the recent piece, the title of which is kind of a spoiler, Nobody Uses Dental Dams, So Why Do They Still Exist uh, in the Atlantic, April 21st. Hey, Anna, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. So uh, the caller would like to know if women actually use dental dams or not. And as the author of Nobody Uses Dental Dams, you are the expert. Do anybody? Does anybody use dental dams? Well, as you said, it is a bit of a spoiler that no, it doesn't seem like people really use dental dams. And I reached out to a lot of different researchers for this article to learn more about dental dam usage rates. And they're very understudied, so it's hard to know for sure. But the largest quantitative study was done by a professor named Juliet Richters. And she found that only 2% of women use dental dams on any regular basis. So, of course, there is a chance there are some people who are using them regularly, but certainly not the majority of women who have sex with women. One of the things you point out in your piece is that there isn't really, you know, dental dams for people who don't know what they are, are these kind of squares of latex, sort of a, a condom cut open and laid out that people use as a barrier or people are encouraged to use, women are encouraged to use, lesbians are encouraged to use as a barrier during oral sex. It like lays over the vulva and the clitoris uh, and is between the mouth and the genitalia. But as you unpack in the piece, there's not a great deal of STI risk when it comes to cunnilingus. No, cunnilingus is actually one of the safest forms of sex in terms of STD transmission, at least according to all the doctors I spoke with. Um, and this one in particular, Mary Jane Menken, who's a professor at the Yale School of Medicine, told me that this is really because the labia tissue is more similar to external skin. And so you're much less likely to transmit an STI through that type of tissue than the internal tissue that's exposed during other types of sex. So the collar really should not be too worried, especially compared to the other types of sex that she has had. And she should know that if she shows up with dental dams, 98% of the bi or lesbian women that she may get with are going to look at her like, who are you and what planet did you come from? You know, it seems like that probably is what would happen. Um, <laughs> I obviously can't know for sure, but um, based on most of the people I talked with, it doesn't seem like this is a product that's been really taken up in any significant way among lesbians and queer women. Um, people seem to have heard of it. People often know what it is. It's mentioned oftentimes in sort of television shows and media as sort of a nod to lesbianism or queer women. But in terms of actual use during sex, it does not necessarily seem to be, be common. Now, I'm old enough to remember when everybody got sick and died. 
54 years old, just old enough as a gay man to be one of those gay men who lost a lot of friends. And I was very involved in AIDS activism in the 80s. And I remember when dental dams kind of became a thing. And there were a lot of right-on lesbians in the HIV AIDS uh, movement who were on the front lines, who put their bodies on the lines, who cared for men who were sick and dying. And there was also this moment where there was this kind of sense that we had to all pretend that lesbians got AIDS too. We chanted, lesbians get AIDS. Say it, lesbians get AIDS. And therefore, we needed dental dams and AIDS organizations ordered crate loads of dental dams that then nobody ever used and the lesbians who weren't sleeping with men or weren't using IV drugs didn't get AIDS, despite the fact that none of them were using dental dams. And it was almost this kind of egalitarian sort of misplacement of priorities, certainly misplacement of resources, where we had to pretend AIDS didn't discriminate when actually it kind of did. There were sex acts that were riskier and therefore communities that were more at risk. And yet dental dams. Yeah, I, I found that so interesting, diving into the history of how, how it became popularized. And I think that sort of what you said, misplaced egalitarianism really came from a lack of scientific understanding of what was causing AIDS. Mm-hmm. And as mm-hmm. you know, queer women within this movement were seeing all of their male friends get sick and pass away, they it seems like they had perfectly good reason to be afraid. They had no way of knowing the actual way that it was transmitted. Absolutely. People had perfectly reasonable fears. Everyone remembers, I remember, people my age remember the Oprah show where she said if, you know, it keeps growing at the rate it's growing, everyone's going to be dead of AIDS in 25 years. But by the time the dental dams came around, we knew what the virus was. We knew essentially how it was transmitted, but we were all forced to pretend everyone was equally at risk. In a, in a way, we pretended that to make straight people care about this because straight people mm. obviously didn't care enough when we were the ones dying or just us, you know, just queer guys or um, IV drug users were at risk. We had to sort of pretend everybody was equally at risk, hence the crates of dental dams moldering in the backs of AIDS organization storage units. One last question for you, and I think this is a really interesting um, place where your your piece ends, um, that, you know, dental dams and, and being educated about dental dams, it's incorporated into a lot of sex ed programs for young people. And while people don't use dental dams and while the risk isn't so great that people really need to use dental dams, it does serve a kind of a purpose that you identify and is beneficial in a way that you identify that has nothing to do with disease prevention. Yeah, well, it's interesting because for this piece, I learned a lot about how sex ed curricula are built and what kind of those lesson plans focus on. And in many ways, sex education is just about preventing harm. And so they look at different types of STDs that can be prevented and different methods to have safer sex or make certain risks from sex less likely. And if you're only talking about the most potentially harmful in terms of STD or STI or or pregnancy risks or outcomes of sex, then queer sex between women is not necessarily something that's going to come up. But if you're talking about dental dams and you're talking about the fact that there is, of course, some risk that STDs and STIs can be transmitted between women, then you are nodding to the existence of of sex between women. And for young people in sex ed classes who might not find most of that information relevant to their own lives, 
young queer women can often feel represented in that way. And I did think that was interesting um, as as one sort of side benefit of dental dams. They they validate a type of sex that's often ignored in these types of settings. Anna Waters, assistant producer at Atlantic Live. Go read her piece, Nobody Uses Dental Dams, So Why Do They Still Exist? An Object Lesson at theatlantic.com. Thank you so much, Anna, for jumping on the phone. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dan. Straight male from the East Coast in his late 20s. I have a question about relationship artifacts. Uh, I got a new job and I'm moving, cleaning out all my closets and various storage spaces. And one thing I keep running into are remnants from my ex relationship. Uh, We were together for about six years, split almost two ago, and it didn't really end on great terms. Uh, We haven't actually talked in that two years. And mainly because I have really nothing nice to say to her or chummy that would spark a relationship in that way. I don't want to be with her romantically or sexually anymore, but a friendship with someone who I've spent so much time with would be nice uh, in theory. Uh, But the remnants I keep running into are letters, sketches, expired inside jokes, and a full nude self-portrait that she drew me all from this couple year span of my life. And as I was talking to somebody about this, they said that these, you should save these, that they're an account of me from somebody who arguably knew me the best. But holding on to them really seems just like sitcom fodder in the worst way possible. I, I guess they're right that there's some sentimentality to it, but I don't really want to read them. Uh, what should I do with these? Is this a way to contact my ex again? Should I just send her the shit out of the blue? Cause she probably has a bag of my stuff or it's in the garbage two years ago and I'm overthinking it. Or is it just too emo to burn this in the backyard? Like the emo kid inside of me really wants to do. There's no need to return old love letters to someone that you broke up with two years ago. That would be weird and potentially cruel. And so you either hold on to them, you stick them in a corner, you shove them in a box, maybe you run across them 20, 30 years later, and you read them and you remember who you were, you remember something about that time of your life, and you get a warm feeling inside. But you don't return them to your ex, especially just 24 short months after a bad breakup. The only thing that you describe that you might want to think about contacting your ex to inquire as to what she would like you to do with it is that nude self-portrait that she drew you. You can send her a quick email. You can send her a DM that says, I'm moving. I'm cleaning out some stuff. I found the drawing you made for me. I found this self-portrait. I'd like to know, would you like me to return it to you? I could mail it to you. Or would you like me to dispose of it? If it's not something that you want to hold on to, dispose of it safely, meaning not just toss it in the recycling bin for someone else to find and take a picture of and slap on the internet, but destroy. And then balls in her court. Then she gets to decide what she'd like you to do with that. Maybe it is a piece of work that she would like to have back. If so, she'll let you know. If you don't hear from her, That means destroy it. If you hear from her and she says destroy it, that means destroy it. 
But the rest of it, letters, mementos, hang on to what you would like to hang on to, hang on to what's meaningful for you, hang on to whatever you think you might like to read again in 20 or 30 years time. Otherwise, have that bonfire. If you have access to a nice little fire pit in the woods somewhere, go for a hike, build a little fire, read the letters one last time and toss them in. Hi, Mr. Savage. I'm a 24-year-old cisgender bisexual female from Western Canada. I'm going through a season of just straight up hoeing around. Apart from this current period, uh, during my whole life, I've spent about two months of it single. The first relationship was like a six-year religious, sexually repressed, and very emotionally abusive partnership, during which I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and attempted to take my own life. My most recent partner and I just split up. And I'm spending my time hooking up with men and women from Tinder. And I'm talking two to four, like, brand new partners a week. Part of it is that I love sex and I want to have fun. But part of it is that I kind of feel lost and I've lost my faith in long-term partnerships. I'm being safe, like, not getting STIs and stuff like that and being open with those partners that I'm only looking for something casual. But is what I'm doing an okay, healthy thing? Uh, a couple of my friends have suggested that I'm trying to like catch up after a traumatic relationship and I'm trying to fill a hole with mindless sex. The catching up doesn't bother me. Like I don't see why I shouldn't since I want to experience as much as I can and just generally want to have a good time. But is there something inherently wrong with serial one night stands? Like For the first time in my life, I'm independent and finding who I am, like moving into my own apartment alone for the first time and all that. But I'm also feeling lost. As someone who has found stability in my mental illness, protecting myself is really important to me. So do you think that what I'm doing is a normal part of finding myself? Or do you think that this is me filling a hole and that it's just going to make things worse? A person with bipolar disorder is at risk for manic episodes. And some people with bipolar disorder have a lot of sex during a manic episode. The sex that they have is usually characterized by a certain degree of recklessness or is absolutely characterized by recklessness. What you describe, if the description is accurate, isn't reckless. You're being safe. You're taking precautions. You're having a lot of sex with many partners. You're having a lot of one-night stands. That by itself isn't evidence that you're doing anything wrong, that you're harming yourself. Of course, the more people you jump into bed with, the greater your odds of jumping into bed with uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. It's just an odds game. Of course, some people jump into bed with the serial killer the first time they jump into bed with someone. Terrible people are always a risk. And the more people you cycle through your life, the more people you welcome into your bed, the more people you make yourself vulnerable in front of, the greater your risk. All that said, you have bipolar disorder. You need to be cognizant of your risk for a manic episode, a manic break, and someone in the grips of a manic break isn't always the best judge of whether what they're doing is healthy or not. So I hope you are seeing your counselor, seeing your therapist. I hope you are taking your meds. I hope you're checking with friends who you trust and who are empowered in your relationship and the established dynamic to be brutal and, and truthful with you when you need to hear the brutal truth. And if you're doing all those things and not a manic episode and you aren't behaving recklessly, yeah, it could be that you are just getting it out of your system, that you are just having a lot of sex right now because that is what's right for you and what you need in your life right now. And that can be perfectly legitimate. But I do think you need to 
take care. It's just like somebody with a history of alcoholism in their family has to be a little bit more careful, a little more conscious of when and how much they drink because of the heritability of alcoholism. You have to be a little bit more conscious of what having a lot of sex could mean for someone with bipolar so that you can control for that. You need to be a little bit more thoughtful about it perhaps than somebody else who didn't suffer from bipolar would have to be. Finally, I'd recommend if you want more great advice for people with bipolar, you pick up both of Ellen Forney's terrific books, Marbles, Mania, Depression, Michelangelo and Me, and her terrific and very helpful guide, Rock Steady, Brilliant Advice from My Bipolar Life. I have friends who've read these books and benefited from them tremendously. If you have not yet read them, call her or gotten your hands on them, you should, even if this isn't a manic episode, even if the sex isn't reckless, you will benefit from Ellen's insights into your condition. All right, we're going to take a quick break from the calls to talk about couples therapy. It's the new nine-part docuseries that premiered on Showtime last Friday. It follows four very different couples as they work through their conflicts, their resentments, their assumptions created by Josh Kriegman, Elise Steinberg, and Ellie Dupree, and I played a small role in making it happen as an EP. Dr. Orna Goralnik is the therapist, the couples therapist who works with these four couples, and she joins me by phone now to talk about the show and her participation in it. Hey, Dr. Goralnik, thank you for jumping on the phone this morning. Mm-hmm. Good morning. So let's talk about the observation effect. It's a physics thing, but I think it applies here. And it's a theory that observing a phenomenon inevitably changes that phenomenon. Do you think being observed, knowing there were cameras recording these therapy sessions, changed the process for you or for the couples? I think I have kind of a dialectic response to that. On one hand, it was sort of shocking to realize that nothing changes when you have uh, cameras around you. The work is the work. Um, the stories that came out of these people and the the need to actually work and do the work and get engaged was just as real and just as um, followed the same kind of trajectory as it would have been in any other setting in my office. I mean, I felt, I mean, at some point I remember I was saying to the directors that I feel like a baker, that I just show up for work and, you know, I know kind of the ingredients I need to put together and oddly it doesn't even matter if there are cameras, people watching, nothing. It's just the same work. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of one shocking aspect of this uh, project, which we, uh, none of us knew would work, but it did. It did. The show, I mean, I played a small role as an EP and I don't want to suck my own dick here because I did very little. But it is really compelling, not just as television and not just as reality television, but it's really compelling the work that you do, the work the couples do. And, you know, the the, the saw is with something like this. Oh, it's going to help people. It's going to reach people. But I really think that it will and that it Mm -hmm. may have already. Thank you. It's really good to hear that. I mean, I do feel like the <clears throat> the kind of thing we do in our psychoanalytic offices is kind of a daily engagement with what's profound about the human experience. People do incredible things when they sit down and try to work on themselves. It's pretty amazing. Um, I get to witness it every day, and I'm really happy that I, I get to bring in people to see what people can do. And how long have you been doing this? How long have you been a couples therapist? 
a long time. <laughs> 25 years. Okay. Well, that, oh, pshaw, that's nothing. I've been writing my stupid sex advice column for almost 30 years. So call well, me. Okay. Well, all right. We've been at it uh, more than a generation. So do you find, as I have found, that it's harder for people in truly long, long, long-ass term relationships to be honest with each other? I've often observed that it can be easier for someone to be fully honest about their feelings, about their sexual needs, about everything with someone they aren't invested in in any way, they don't care about, that they may not see ever again. And it's sort of a paradox that the more there is at stake in a long-term relationship, the harder it is to be honest. I like that. That's interesting. Um, I think in certain ways it's true. In certain ways, not. I mean, in in the ways that it's true is I think couples get into certain kind of defensive positions and grooves and in a way... The stakes are higher the more you know the person and the defenses, in a way, get more rigid, you know, because it's, it's, it's like your heart of heart of heart is in the relationship. You're really, really vulnerable the more time you spend with another person and the more connected and attached you are. Um, and, yes, yeah, so certain kind of defenses get built up, and it's harder for people to then be honest, move out of those defenses, on the other hand, um, there's a certain kind of brutal honesty of living with someone for a long time where you, in a certain way, in, in kind of a procedural way, you know everything about them, right? So there's a certain kind of honesty that is the lived experience. It's not about what you say to each other. It's just about living together that is also pretty profound. So I guess it's kind of a mix. Be honest, move out of those you defenses. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. But, but be honest, move out of those defenses. Like a, a relationship is, in a way, you know, a, a couple that's been together for the long term that has kids. That's sort of a public-facing edifice. And, mm-hmm. you know, there is kind of this subtle competition, I think, in a lot of relationships. Who's on top, who's yeah. on bottom. And I'm talking about sexual roles, but who's up, who's down. And, and that yeah. the battle for control, it mm-hmm. seems to grow over time until – Many couples either land in divorce court or couples therapy. I, w- I don't know if I would generalize that. I think that's one of the trajectories that can happen, mm-hmm. and that would lead people to couples therapy or to give up or or to just kind of surrender into these like very, I guess, extreme forms of relationship where just people just agree that one's top, one's bottom, and that's it. There's no more negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I don't think it's true about all couples. I don't know. I don't know if that's the only dynamic that would typify a long-term couple. But yeah, that could be one. One of the differences between my job and your job is that my job often includes, you know, the expectation that I will say you should end this. Right. Couples therapists don't say that. They're not as didactic, right? You wouldn't look at a couple across from you and say, this is hopeless, end it. That's not your job. Um, that would be a very rare situation, very rare. I mean, if I felt like people are literally putting each other in danger, I would, uh, which does happen. But most of the time, no, it's not my job. My job is to kind of facilitate a process of being able to actually face each other and talk about what's going on. Some people are adults and they can figure it out once they can get the debris out of the way and they can actually talk. And does that mean diffusing landmines or controlled explosions? 
in, in couples therapy, when, when people watch this show in couples therapy is, is what they're going to see is what you're doing, helping people navigate around landmines, or is it about walking up to them and having a controlled explosion? I'm, oh, well, let's, okay. Uh, let's see. Fourth choice here. Because um, <laughs> it, does, it does seem to me that in many long-term relationships, there are like the no-go areas that just, just this will never be resolved. This is an internal, uh, eternal engine of conflict. And so if we're going to be together, we have to walk around this and avoid it as opposed to face it. But sometimes, you know, that thing you were walking around and avoiding because it was so potentially explosive, you reach a point in the relationship where you have to face that thing. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of people face that thing in your office and in this show. Right, right. I'm, I'm not. I'm generally not in favor of avoidance. I like to walk over to the edge of the abyss and look and find a way to tolerate and bear and talk about and find ways to wrap minds around really difficult stuff. But. Um, I don't, I mean, people, I don't know about, I mean, I don't know if it has to be an explosion. I think if you sit around the edge, if you have patience and you sit around the edge of the abyss, you can find that certain truths are not actually that explosive, but you can bear them. Actually, you know, knowing your show, I think you do a lot of that. You, you, you find a way to give people a language to speak about what seems to be so unbearable but actually, if you really find a rational or an acceptable way to talk about it, people find a way to tolerate a lot mm-hmm. in each other. What, what do you hope viewers take away? I mean, the couples that you work with, Lauren and Sarah, Annie and Mal, Elaine and Desan, Evelyn and Alan, we, we see what they take away and we follow their, their progress. And it's really, yeah. really moving uh, where they start, where they end up, where, where you guide yeah. them. Um, but what do you hope the viewer takes away? What was it the viewer to learn from observing these four couples with you? I first of all hope that they identify with all the positions in the room. I hope that they identify with each of the couples in the room, that they kind of expand their own vocabulary of how to understand each other. And I also hope they identify with the therapeutic position, with my position, so that they can learn how to observe their own process. I mean, ultimately, you want people to be a little less glued to their position and be able to imagine that there are other ways to think about or feel about what seems so critical in that moment that if you just step back and have other ways to think about things, it might feel less polarized, less um, critical, and you can actually find another way to move around issues that seem impossible in the moment. Another way to step around those landmines. Yeah, or to, to, or to think about them so they don't feel like landmines anymore, that they just feel like, oh, this is humanity. We are people here, and yeah, there's trauma, there's difficulty, certain people have certain sensibilities that you have to accept. I think it's it's a lot about increasing our capacity to bear, to bear truth. Dr. Orna Goralnik, she is the couples therapist on Couples Therapy, the new nine-part docuseries from Showtime. Check it out. Hey, Dr. Goralnik, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan.
Hi, Dan. I am a 26-year-old female living in Boston, and my boyfriend of five years unexpectedly broke up with me about three months ago. I didn't see it coming. We did have a lot of issues in our relationship, mainly involved around his work and us just essentially not spending that much time together and that turning into me not feeling connected to him. The way he broke up with me was very out of the blue. It was right before he left on a trip to Paris with his friends. And he essentially was like, I don't love you anymore. And it just made me feel like the whole relationship was cheapened by his admission that he just doesn't love me anymore. And in such a short amount of time. And... um I just wonder, like, am I really that unlovable? Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about unexpected breakups. I mean, the realistic part of me realizes it's him and not me, but uh, I can't help but take it incredibly personally. Rejection always sucks. It always hurts. The unexpected breakup, even the breakup you saw coming, can really really fucking hurt. So you ask for my take on unexpected breakups. Well, I'm just going to say what everybody else says. All the cliches apply. It hurts. You have to power through it. And you don't want to read the wrong message into it. It's not that you weren't lovable. It's not that you were never lovable. You guys were in love for a time. Love isn't always eternal. And it doesn't have to be eternal to have been meaningful and valuable. We have it in our heads that, you know, if it's not death that parted you, that the relationship was a failure and a relationship can last for a while, last for a time, last for a weekend, last for a year, last for five years and end. And if you both grew, if you were both better people at the end of that relationship, better people for having known each other, then the relationship was a success. Even if what you learn coming out of the relationship is a hard truth, even if what you come out of that relationship knowing is that you picked the wrong person and you were with the wrong person, well, you're in a better position then going forward to know at least what it is you don't want next time and therefore you'll be in a better position to hopefully find someone that is a better match for you, someone that you can be with for a longer period of time and have, even if it doesn't last forever, even if it doesn't last till the end of your life, perhaps a more successful relationship with. You say you're worried the relationship was cheapened by this admission, but only if you want to backdate what he admitted, which he was no longer in love with you anymore, to the start of the relationship. And you need to ask yourself, the first six months, the first year, the first 24 months, the first 36 months, were the feelings genuine? I think the answer to that question, even if a relationship has ended at five years, can be yes. Romantic attachments, romantic feelings, romantic love isn't always forever. And the lesson isn't that you are unlovable just because this person isn't in romantic love with you anymore. It doesn't mean you are unlovable. This person loved you and you loved them at one time. That is evidence. It's proof indeed that you are lovable. He wasn't able to love you until the end of your life or the end of his. Another guy will come along or a series of guys will come along who are capable of loving you for a time. Maybe not for the entire time that you are on this planet, not the entire time that you are alive, 
but for a good time, an extended period of time, a period of time that will have meaning and value even if the relationship ends before he does or you do. So have your sad. Don't lacerate yourself. Have your sad. Don't chuck yourself into the fucking wood chipper. Have your sad. Eat your ice cream. Go to the gym. Hang out with your friends. Allow yourself to be boring and vent. Ask them to allow you to be boring and vent, but only for a month. And then they are to listen to you for a few minutes and change the fucking subject and drag you to the movies or drag you to the clubs or drag you to a bar to have a drink and force you to talk about and think about something, and ultimately, someone else. Hey, Dan. I've been thinking about a submissive sexual situation. If I were to drink a guy's fist, if he was taking a medication, would I be possibly getting doses of medication that I don't want? Or what about if somebody has an infection? Like, is there any kind of medical advice? I've heard that urine is sterile, but I've never heard about other things that might be in urine that might be able to cause a problem. As discussed on this program previously for many years, people believed urine was sterile. It is not. We had Mike Pesca on to unpack that for me, to walk me through that. He is Slate's resident sterility of urine expert. And he pointed out that sterile is a binary. Something is sterile or it isn't sterile and urine ain't sterile. Not to parse it too finely, but there are probably more bugs and pathogens in your saliva than in someone's urine. But yeah, not sterile. And if someone's putting his dick in your mouth to piss down your throat and that someone has gonorrhea, they could be pissing gonorrhea down your throat. If that someone has syphilis, they could be transmitting syphilis to you. There are lots of risks. Herpes, chlamydia, there are lots of risks to putting someone's penis in your mouth. Those risks aren't necessarily compounded or made worse by that person pissing down your throat. There could be trace amounts of that person's medications. People have failed drug tests at work, not because they used any quote unquote illegal drugs themselves, but because the person whose urine that they drank in advance of the drug test had used drugs and trace amounts of it appeared then in the urine of the person who drank the urine of the person who took the drugs. So there are risks here. Again, they're not magnified by the urine. It's the risk of the dick in the mouth for chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, herpes. Urine doesn't make that risk any greater. But if you're worried about drug tests at work, you're going to want to make sure you're drinking the urine of someone who isn't using any drugs that you're not allowed to use by your employer. Hi, Dan. A 23-year-old bisexual female on the East Coast. My partner and I have been dating now for almost two years, and we recently brought up the idea of making a sex tape, which is really exciting, um, being that I've always, was, honestly, I was very surprised that he'd be into it. And um, I'm an actor. I'm a film actor and a theater performer. So being in front of the camera is totally comfortable for me. I'm like really, really excited about the idea. But now that I'm thinking about it, I'm getting a little self-conscious about seeing my face when I orgasm. And I don't think that it's enough to make me uncomfortable enough to not want to do it at all. But now I'm thinking more about like what I'm going to look like. And I know that I'm very vocal and very squirmy when we're doing like foreplay or anything like that. Cause I'm very ticklish. And I know that like I'm very physically active with foreplay and it, I'm kind of nervous to see what it looks like. Um, is this normal to be scared? Is this enough to not, 
make the sex tape because it's honestly not a huge deal i'll probably get over it but i'm scared i'm gonna make it in hopes that it's gonna be super sexy and not sexy because it's just sex it's not an actual porn but am i gonna regret this just because i'm uncomfortable i'm not entirely sure how uncomfortable i am i'm confused presumably your boyfriend who wants to make the sex tape thinks you look hot when you're coming but you thinking you look hot when you're coming could be along the same lines of somebody liking your voice and you hearing a recording of your own voice and not liking your voice. There's the voice of ours that we hear in our heads, and then there's the voice other people on the other side of the room or with their earbuds in on the other side of the world hear, and that may not be the voice you like. And I, I think the same thing could potentially happen here. You've never seen yourself at the moment of orgasm. It could be a look on your face or a grimace that you don't think is particularly sexy and you weren't aware that you were making, but it is a look that your boyfriend associates with your pleasure. This isn't the concern most people have in advance of making a sex tape. Most people's concerns revolve quite rightly around security. You know, will this tape ever get out there? Will this video clip or clip ever get out there? Can they trust their partner not to, spread that tape around or spread that video clip around if the relationship goes south and they get angry? Are they going to weaponize it? Are they going to use it as revenge porn? Those are most people's perfectly legitimate concerns with these tapes. I've never gotten a call from someone who's worried about what they might look like when they're coming. If you are concerned, I think the way you can control for that is he makes the tape and hands you the phone. If you're using your phones, as most people do, and you get first pass on that edit. And if you don't like how it looks, you delete it. And then you don't have to think about it ever again. And you don't have to do it ever again. And there are plenty of ways to make sex tapes. There are plenty of ways to make fun. There's plenty of ways to sex, take fun pictures, make fun short video clips that don't include either participant at the point of orgasm. Indeed, most of the sex tapes, clip sex that I've seen or received over the years have not been point of orgasm O-face clips, but rather in the swim, in the middle of the action clips. So you have options. You can make that tape without having to climax on that tape. And again, make your boyfriend hand you that phone. And if you don't like how it looks, you delete it right away. And then it no longer exists in this world. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. More like Lilith tweets at fake Dan Savage. Remind me how long after a breakup one is permitted to wallow and only eat ice cream. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Wallowing and eating only ice cream, you get two weeks for that. You get an additional two weeks where your breakup is all you can talk about, where you get two more weeks of wallow, a little less ice cream, maybe phase the ice cream out, and then you have to shut up about your heartbreak. You have to go out with your friends and ask them questions about their lives, and their lives will help you put your life in perspective and get on with your life. Saeed de la Cruz tweets, Love you, Dan, but it is very inconsistent for you to chastise people for forcing others to partake in their sexcapades by having sex in public one day and then turn around and insist that public sex at pride events are an inevitability the next. All right. You have sex in a park at some random time of day or on the subway. That's not fair to people who might just be there to enjoy the park or just trying to get to work. You go to Pride and you go to the Pride Parade, which is a celebration of sexual diversity, sexual expression, sexual freedom, you may encounter some of that sexual diversity and some of that sexual expression that you went to Pride to celebrate. 
The distinction I'm trying to make is between spaces and places where you have a reasonable expectation there will not be public sexual activity. And of course, something like Pride, where it is reasonable to expect you may encounter some sexual activity or sexual expression. You always have the option of turning around and marching in the other direction when that happens. And finally, Suleiman Akhenny tweets, after listening to 100 of the most recent episodes of Hashtag Savage Lovecast, I've gone back and I am now listening to the very first episodes, and it is so trippy to hear Dan refer to Terry as his boyfriend. For some reason, I thought they'd been married since the beginning of time. Sometimes feels that way, especially to us, but marriage equality only came to the United States in 2015. We have been married here as long as we could be, and we will stay married for as long as we possibly can but it hasn't been since the beginning of time. All right, if you want me to read one of your tweets on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, uh, I just had to stop in the middle of episode 671 and tell you that you and uh, Paul Sullivan are 100% completely wrong about finances. I've been married for almost 25 years. My husband and I have always kept our money separate and we have pooled uh, money based on who earns more into a common fund to pay for things. And this has reduced stress around money, reduced arguments, and engaged us in much greater intimacy. This idea that magically having a pool of money that we all take means that people will have to talk about things. No, people can just dip into the money and spend it at will. If you have to put in certain amounts of money in order to accomplish something like the infamous new couch you mentioned, they have to agree on how much to spend and then on what to do. Trust me, it works beautifully. And one other thing, let's be aware that men hold most of the power and most of the money in this country and that even when they don't make more than their wives, they often hold more political and social power. And so asking a woman to hand over her money into a giant pool when she makes more than he does, is really asking for her to submit to the patriarchal unfairness and let him have access to things he hasn't earned. No. Have separate money. Do a joint account for household expenses. It will make your life better. End of story. Thank you. Hi. This comment is in regard to the woman who wanted to know how to feel good about having degrading yet also casual sex. I thought Dan's advice was really great, spot on especially the part about the aftercare. The only thing I'd like to add is that aftercare is for tops too. Tops need to know that what they did was consensual and that you feel good about it so that they can feel good about what they did too. Hey, Dan. My wife and I listened to your last podcast and just had a response to the woman that was so tragically hurt about her Audi vagina. We had never heard of this. We're both 50 years old. My entire life, I've seen a lot of vaginas. I've never heard of this thing. Perhaps it's a regional concept. I've seen a lot of pussy in porn and seen large labia minora, small labia minora. I rather love seeing large lips. And I just felt terrible for this woman. But this isn't a real thing, or at least I hope it's not a real thing that anybody would feel this way talk to some people, you're going to feel a lot better. This is completely normal and pretty desirable to an awful lot of the population. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, even better, you can record your question on your phone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. 
keep to three minutes or less, please. And be sure to include a phone number if you want me to give you a call back. If you like my political rants at the top of the show, you want to listen to me every week or almost every week on Blabbermouth, the News of the Week podcast hosted by Eli Sanders, myself, and some of the other smart writers here at The Stranger in Seattle, Blabbermouth, every Wednesday. And if you really can't get enough of me running my mouth and you're in Chicago, Madison, Minneapolis, Toronto, or Boston, Savage Love Live is coming to all of those cities in the fall. Tickets are available at savagelovecast.com slash events. And my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival Hump is also on the road coming this weekend to Kansas City, Portland, Maine, and Victoria, British Columbia. Head over to humpfilmfest.com slash tour to get your tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Orna Goralnik on Twitter at Orna Goralnik. And follow Anna Waters on Twitter at Anna Waters, but spell Waters with a Z. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.